0: We're going to continue our study, Redeeming Genesis, this morning, and uh, reminding us that the reason why we're studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis and calling it Redeeming Genesis is for two reasons. One, we need to redeem the historical fact of what Genesis is. Remind ourselves it is the Word of God, and it's not a flannel graph story. It is real people who God used in real ways, and we need to re. Uh, redeem that and remind ourselves that these are people who God chose to use to begin his entire narrative of salvation. But that brings us to the second reason why we call it redeeming Genesis, and that is that God, in all of his beginnings, in creating the heavens and the earth, and the beginning of sin, and the beginning of, of all of these covenants, there is a real redemption story in every chapter Of these first 11 chapters in Genesis. And so we want to see the redemption story in the narrative, the story, the facts of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And so this morning we're in chapter 4 in a message entitled Two Lineages, Genesis 4. 1 through 26. We're also going to incorporate a little bit of chapter 5. How many of you all have read through the first few chapters of Genesis before? At some point in your life, you've gotten through, maybe it's a New Year's resolution, and you started Genesis chapter 1, and you start working your way through, and it's all exciting stuff until you get to chapters 4, but really chapter 5, right? Because what happens in chapter 5 that makes you go, oh, it's this chapter again. Does anybody know? What is it? Noah's chapter 6, we get to him in chapter 5. What is the exciting thing that happens in Genesis chapter 5? Yeah, nothing, right? <laughs> begats, the begats. It's the genealogy. And Abraham, or not Abraham, and Adam begat uh, Seth. And Seth begat Enosh. And Adam uh, begat and begat and begat and begat and begat and begat. And we're like, okay, God, we're going to skip over chapter 5. Anybody get guilty of skipping over chapter 5 before? I'm going to read chapters 1 and 2 and 3. 4 has a little begatting in it, but there's at least some good narrative in there. And then chapter 5, it's like, Holy smokes. I've got good news and bad news for you. The the bad news is that we're not going to be going through Genesis chapter 5 in detail. And the good news is, for some of you, that we're not going to be going in Genesis chapter 5 in detail. We're going to hit a few important parts of it today in Genesis 4 as we look at the importance of lineages and lines and genealogies. I know what you're saying pastor, I didn't sign up to come to church to read genealogies, but this is important. As a matter of fact, every word recorded in Scripture is important, and I think you're going to walk away this morning with a new appreciation for how God uses those begets. And so if, if you believe these statements this morning, before we dive into the Word of God, if you believe this, repeat this after me, the Bible is the Word of God. What it teaches, I will believe. What it commands, I will obey. And extra loud for this one, when it convicts, I will change. It's always the quietest one. The Bible is the Word of God, and this morning I want to start not in Genesis, but by... Reading a passage in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. In other words, we have plans and ideas, ways that God should work and ways that God should move, people that God should use and people that God shouldn't use, and we put all the chess pieces where we think they need to be, and there's a way that seems right to us. And the writer of this proverb tells us that way, in our own mind, in our own will, and in our own orchestrating of events, it always leads to death. It's going to be important as we look at two different lines this morning. Two different lines. One's going to have a familiar name to it, but really we're going to emphasize a not familiar name. And the other is going to be a a, a genealogy or a, a person that you don't think a whole lot about, but man has immense importance. So let's start with the first line in Genesis 4. That is the line of death. That is Cain. The story of Cain and Abel. The line of death. I think it's really important to understand who Cain was and the expectations put on his shoulders. Before we delve in and start reading, let's just try to get the weight of what Cain was possibly carrying. So I want to just do this illustration real quick. How many of you all believe that Jesus Christ will return? Anybody believe that? Yeah, show of hands. If you're at home, go ahead and put your hand up too. We can't physically see you, but participate with us. We believe that Jesus will return, and the million-dollar question that we want to ask is, when, right? So here's just a little, little thought experiment. I want you to raise your hands also with this. How many of you all believe, believe that the Lord will return either in your lifetime or your children's lifetime? How many of you all believe that? Believe that the Lord will return pretty soon, right? Okay. How many of you all believe that, we know the Lord will return, but it's going to be down the road. We don't have to worry about it quite yet. It's probably not going to be in our kid's lifetime, maybe not even our grandkids' lifetime. The Lord's going to return, but it's going to be a while. Anybody believe that? Right? Small number of hands, okay. How many of you all just say, I don't believe the Lord will ever actually return at all? Anybody? Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad. Right? I'm glad we're at least that far. The vast majority of people in here have the belief that the Lord is coming back soon. Like, maybe I won't get to finish my sermon, which would be great. Lord, if you're listening, my plan and my will that I'm telling you to do. No, it doesn't work that way. We all believe the Lord's coming back, like, soon. And why is that? Because all of Scripture tells us to look for signs, and at every point in human history, the signs have been there and could be interpreted that the Lord could come back. That's intentional, by the way. The Lord is not slow or 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 just waiting for us to finally figure something out. He has a perfect time, I believe, looking at the world around us, that it could happen imminently, like now, because the Scripture reveals things to us to say, be ready now. And we have this mindset that the second coming of Christ could be at any moment and any time. And we can live in this mindset knowing that's what God's Word seems to reveal. But if we go all the way back and think about the first coming of Christ, there's a very similar mentality. I think every generation of the Old Testament was looking for the Messiah, and he could come at any moment and any time. He waited thousands of years from Genesis 1 till Matthew chapter 1. He waited a long time, but at every moment, there were people looking around, just like we are looking for the second coming, looking for the first coming of the Messiah. They didn't know his name. They knew a little bit about the prophecy as God revealed it to them. I, I will say we probably have more details in the second coming than they had in the first coming, right? We probably try to put together all these pieces, but we know they were looking forward to this Messiah and imagine this, there were some false messiahs that popped up, people who claimed to be the Messiah. Just like today, we have false second comings pop up, people who claim to have a new special revelation. There were people who thought they could figure out the times and the dates, the Messiah is coming the first time. In this time, because of these prophecies, just like today, we have people saying the Messiah has to come on this date and this time because of these prophecies. And that same mindset we have about the second coming, the people in the Old Testament had about the first, and I think it's important to realize that wasn't something that developed. I think that's something that happened with Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, the prophecy in chapter 3 was that a seed from Eve, a child or a descendant from Eve would be the one to crush Satan and restore the relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so Eve hears, one of my descendants, my children is going to do this, and in verse 1 of chapter 4, Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I believe with all of my heart, and I'll tell you why I believe in just a minute, that Adam and Eve looked at their firstborn son and said, you're the one who will crush the serpent. He's finally come. We have a child with great pain he's been brought forth, and with the Lord's help I have gotten a man, a seed, a descendant. It wasn't an accident that Cain's, their firstborn was a male, right? That was the prophecy. And, and they even name him with a lot of hopes on his shoulders. The name Cain means created one or produced. Look what God has produced out of us. Very similar to that word seed that God had promise would come and crush the serpent's head. How about this? We're going to find out here in just a couple of verses that like Adam, Cain's father, Cain was someone who worked the ground. Adam, you're commanded to, to work the ground and, and cultivate the garden. And what was Cain's primary job? I believe Adam took him alongside and said, You're my seed, you're my descendant. I want you to be what I was not. You learn how to work the ground. He literally is this first seed that Adam and Eve ever have. There's a lot of expectations on this young man. And in Adam and Eve's mind, they had a way that seemed right to them. They had a way that God should work and God should move. Of course, we know the story of Cain and Abel. We can read together in the next few verses, starting in verse 2. Again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. There we know Cain took after Adam, and Abel learned a new trade. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. As we read the story of Cain and Abel, a common question we always ask it pops up into everyone's mind, and we've created answers for, is why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's rejected? Have you ever asked that before? Why, why did God choose Abel's offering and not Cain's? Maybe you've got an idea in your mind why it is, or some people who say, well, it's because Cain offered an animal, or I'm sorry, Abel offered an animal and Cain only grain. The problem is we, we don't really see any Reason why God commanded an animal offering at this time. And what we find is God reveals through the Old Testament there are times that God requires a grain offering. So a grain offering can be acceptable. It can't be just because one's an animal and one's grain. Some people try to say, well, it's because Abel brought the best portions and Cain brought the leftovers. I think that's actually probably a really good explanation, and may possibly be true. Abel did indeed bring the the fatty portions, the the best portions, and it doesn't say what portions Cain gave to us. But I think it's important that it doesn't say what portions Cain gave to us. We we have to assume something to say that's the reason, and maybe that's the right assumption, but the Bible doesn't say it. It just says he brought some the way Abel brought some. I I think actually there's no satisfactory answer, and I, I think it's really the wrong question to ask. But we don't know the exact reason, although we can come up to all these possibilities. Instead, the right question to ask is, how did Cain respond to God's correction? I don't think the point is to figure out the offering stuff. I think the point is to figure out when God tells you you're out of line, when God tells you you've fallen short, when God tells you there's sin, how do you respond to that? God tells him, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over your sin. i got to ask, is that possible to do? How many of you all say, I've got mastery over all the sins in my life, and I never sin anymore. I rule over the sin in my life. Put this one down for just a minute. It's impossible to do. God is giving Cain an impossible task. You must rule over your sin. And the whole purpose of this is to remind us we can't. We will continually fall short. How do we respond to it? Well, we've got two ways to respond. One is to say, God, help me to have mastery because I can't do it on my own. And the other way is rebellion. I give up. I can't do it. I'm frustrated. I'm resentful. I'm angry. And that's the line that Cain takes. Look at me in verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And then we're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he kills him. When confronted with the opportunity to get right with God, Cain rebels and the sin that was crouching at his door is realized. Cain murders his brother. This is the line that is supposed to save Adam and Eve. This is the one who they've, they've named the produced one, the created one. Enter in your 21st century movie analogy. You're the chosen one. You're the one who God has provided to take away sin, and now here you are committing the worst sin at this point in all of human history, murder. We know how it unfolds. God reveals to Cain his sin in even greater detail. Verse 9 and following, The Lord said to Cain, 'Where's Where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Would you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you and its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. No kidding, right? Punishment from God always is. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain realizes that Adam and Eve are going to be upset with him. Adam and Eve will have more children, and they will be upset with him. No matter where he goes, he cannot run far enough away from his sin. Just like you and I trying to run, he's unable to escape the consequences of his sin. So continuing, the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Even in Cain's sin... God is gracious and protector of his creation. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God is at his work again. In the very first generation of creation, Adam and Eve, they commit a sin, and God offers grace. God sacrifices an animal, he covers their shame, he covers their sin, First generation, they sin, God offers grace. Second generation of creation, we're only two generations in. We commit a greater sin, a heavier sin, a murderous sin. And God offers greater grace, greater protection. Notice he says, I will protect you sevenfold. Seven is a number of completion. We're going to come back to this number. It pops up a few times. I will offer complete protection of you, perfect protection of you. I know you sinned, and your sin is greater than anything that anyone has ever done. And I love you enough. My grace is greater, and there's a protection. So what's going to happen to Cain's future generations? This is about lines and lineages. What happens to Cain's children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren? Here we've got a little bit of the begatting in verses 17 and 18. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. So note this, this is important. We said the number seven was going to come up, and this is where your genealogy is going to start to come alive. Lamech is the seventh generation from creation. You can follow Adam one, Cain two, on down to Lamech seven. What did we say seven means? What is seven represented of in Scripture? It is completeness, right? Kind of this, this perfect state of completeness. So this is, in Lamech, the fullness or the completeness of who man will become. I don't think it's an accident that Lamech is number seven. This is when humanity's seed has full completeness, what humanity becomes. Look at these next few verses about Lamech. And this is, this is a man we don't think a lot about, but we should. And Lamech took two wives in verse 19. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was uh, Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold." But what has become of Lamech, this seventh generation of creation, this fullness of who man has come to be? Who, who can we compare Lamech to? How do we describe him? Well, for starters, I, I think it's only fair to see that his children did some amazing things. God's mark of his image is still on them. His children are, are people who, who develop agriculture, who build instruments and play music. They have bronze tools, possibly even forging weapons. They're some modern or ancient, but to them, modern instruments of of creation that, that is remarkable, never been seen before. But Lamech himself, even bearing the mark of the image of God, even able to have children that produce some great things, is an exceedingly wicked man. The worst it's very common for us to read through the Bible and hear, "Hey, they took two wives. They took three wives. Or Solomon took thousands of wives, right?" We, we just kind of let it glance over us like that's what they do. But Lamech is the first person in all of scripture recorded to have more than one wife. He's the first polygamist who took God's created order, a man and a woman, one man, one woman united for all of all of their lives, and he violates it. He wants more. W- one wife isn't enough. Because to him, just like the curse promised, right? to him, his wife was not a partner to live life with. His wife was a possession to rule over. And if he's going to have one, he might as well have two. He's the first one in all of Scripture to have multiple wives. And then we get to what they call it, the Song of Lamech. In your Bible, on the screen, it's kind of just in prose, but, but if you read it in your Bible, it looks kind of like poetry, right? He's, he's gloating with a song or a poem in which he brags about killing a man for striking him. Some guy hit me, and I slayed him. Not only was, was it bad that he took a, a hit and had revenge that was beyond the sin and, and murder, But it goes on to say this wasn't just any man, it was just a young man. The same word that is often used to describe a young boy. Very likely it was, there was a child who came and threw a rock at me, because that's what kids do, and I killed him. He's gone. He's bragging about it. Listen to me, my two wives. Listen to me and what I have done. He boasts in his vengeance. He writes a poem and a song about it, and then... He closes it by claiming more power than God. But follow me with this. When Cain sinned and said, I I, I don't think that I can survive your punishment, God said, I tell you what, I'm going to put a mark on you and anyone who sees you and harms you, I will get revenge. What did he say? Seven times. God says, I've got complete and perfect protection over you. Well, what what does Lamech say? If anyone wants to come get revenge on me, Cain's revenge was sevenfold. But Lamech's, the protection and the vengeance I have for myself is 77-fold. You think you had it, God? I can do better than you. This is the way that seemed right to Adam and Eve. The line of Cain. This is what humanity has become. This is what sin has grown to. This complete And this perfect picture has produced a line of death. We're not sure how many more generations of Cain lived before the flood came. Presumably not many, because none are recorded. The line ends here. With his children, we hear nothing else. The line ultimately does not lead to life. It leads to death. This is where Adam and Eve had put all of their eggs in. Their basket is full. You're the chosen one. You're the offspring. You're the one we're looking to. And he fails. But God produces a second line. God in his infinite grace does not put all of the hopes and dreams on Cain or on the deceased Abel, but he provides a line of salvation. That is, through the line of another man named Seth. A couple of verses to close out the chapter. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. A new line, a fresh start, a new lineage, Seth and Enosh, and at that time through this lineage, through God working in a way different from what Adam and Eve would have expected, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's going to be Cessline line in chapter 5 that produces Noah, the one who, who God protects when he destroys the rest of the world. And therefore, it's Cessline who, who has Noah's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all the way to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's through Cessline that we eventually get King David. We eventually get the the height of God's power through Israel, his revelation through this great nation. It's through Seth's line that ultimately the Savior, Jesus Christ, is born. The the snake killer comes not through Cain. It comes through Seth. comes through this line of life. Number seven shows up again. If you read chapter five, you can count seven generations from Adam through Seth. You've got Adam. you've got Seth and on down to to Enoch, who is the seventh generation from creation, through the line of Seth. Here this man named Enoch, who represents the fullness of God's salvation lineage. He represents the completeness of what, what God wants to do through humanity not through our sinful state, but when people begin to call on the name of the Lord, and God uses them in salvation, you get an Enoch, and in chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, thus are the days of Enoch, or seven, or 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The fullness of humanity, through Seth's line, shows, not in a perfect person, but in those who call on the name of the Lord, the redemption back to God's created order. Enoch was so close with God that he skips over death. This is what God intended for humanity. To be so close with God that we have life and salvation. The fullness of God's redemption is shown, not in death, but in life. This is the line of salvation that God gives us. Those who would call on the name of the Lord. We'll close with the same verse we started with this morning. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This morning, as we think about our own lives, are we making our own plans for salvation? God, I know how to do this. I can do the right things, I can say the right things, I can act the right way, I can be the right person, I can show up to church, I can wear the clothes, I can put the Jesus bumper sticker and wear the t-shirt, I'll listen to the music, I'll even talk about you at work and at school, I'll I'll do everything that I'm supposed to do, God. Seems right to me. i tell you this morning, that way leads to death. But if you would call on the name of the Lord, I can't do this, it's too much for me to bear. God's perfect redemption in your life is not one of death, but of salvation and eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these two lines that you show us very early on in the Bible. Two paths that we can choose to go on. Well, when you correct our sin, we can be like Cain. We can rebel. We can fight. We can be like Adam and Eve and think we just... We'll put all of our hopes and our plans and, and what we think is right. Lord, we can do things our own way. Lord, remind us this morning that that line, that way of living leads to our ultimate failure and to death. Where Father, we can call on the name of the Lord. We can remind ourselves that you created us perfect and our sin, Lord, our sin has us running. If we would call on the name of the Lord, you will forgive our sins. Father, this morning, I pray that we would would trust you and see the fullness of what you want to do in redemption. You would not have our lives end with eternal death and hell, but you would have our lives end in eternal life in heaven with you. So, Father, let us trust you above our own will, above our own plans, above our own ways. We pray this morning that as we wrestle with this, that we would be faithful to call on your name And it's in that name that we pray, Jesus Christ, amen.